0: I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apetz. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the first of our episodes on war and environment and Ukraine. We debated a lot whether to do an episode on Ukraine. After all, there have been wars going on all over the world, all the time, with grave consequences for the lives and livelihoods of people and the environment. Would talking about Ukraine now mean we didn't care about the others? Definitely not. But this one made me think, more than others, the state of the environment. And it made me realize how, even in my head, as someone who works on environmental issues day in, day out, war and environment were in separate boxes. Particularly at this time, when environment was gaining such mainstream attention, we stopped talking about it. People started to say again, not now. Important, but not a priority. And nobody is talking about the environmental damage war's cause. Or worse even, people started to saying things like, well, we won't get grain from Ukraine, we need to produce more food domestically, food security is more important than bees and butterflies, not realizing or deliberately or not forgetting that bees and butterflies equal food security not realizing that climate change won't pause because one country is invading another. We have a couple of episodes lined up on biological diversity and on climate change, but now we really do want to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. And I'm joined by Ala Jungman, whom I met back in 2006 when she was studying her Master's in Environmental Economics and Policy at Imperial College. And now she's based in Washington DC and is an expert on renewable energy projects and environment and social risks and impacts of such projects working for international organizations and companies. And she's from Dnipro. Hi, Ala. I wish we could have hosted you in better circumstances, but thank you for making time for us. We are going to cover the environmental and social impacts of war as much as we can in a length of an episode, but we'll talk again in a week or so, I hope. But first of all, Ala, let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey from Ukraine and what are you doing these days when you're not worrying crazy about your friends and relatives in Ukraine.
1: Hi, Aichi, I'm very glad to see you, even in such circumstances. I was also debating in my mind if this is appropriate time, because everything I'm trying to do is to help my family, my friends there who are uh, evacuating right now, who are on the front line, uh, who are supporting civilians left in the cities under bombardments. but environment is important because it's what sustain us, sustain our life, and we need to know how significant the threat is from war actions on any territory. I come from Ukraine and I did an environmental studies back in Ukraine. I graduated in 2001. I graduated with a master's degree in environmental protection and worked inten- extensively with Ukrainian enterprises on well, assessing environmental impacts and, uh, yeah, I notice that I need to have very strong arguments to move them from uh, business as usual scenario to making our environment better and our quality of life better and that our children can enjoy clean air, clean water, and clean produce. Uh, So that's why I choose to continue studying at Imperial College London. And that's what I did, that's where we met. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were teaching some courses to us on cost-benefit analysis, using a lot of practical examples. And uh, yeah, after that, I moved back to Ukraine. I worked uh, for the Ministry of Environment, a special agency which was in charge of uh, implementing Kyoto Protocol in Ukraine. And then I moved to uh, uh, private companies. Then I got married and moved here to the US, where I worked for the World Bank, IFC, and other other international organizations, helping to assess environmental and social impact assessment from developing renewable energy projects. In 2017, my husband was posted uh, to Ukraine, and uh, we moved back. So I spent their wonderful uh, four years. My sons were able to connect with my parents and spend uh, quality time with them. And uh, we moved back to D.C. in August 2001. Okay. So my, my impressions, my connection with Ukraine is very strong and fresh. And while in Ukraine, I was also I working on development of the largest wind power farm. At that time it was the largest under development, 800 megawatts, and traveled a lot to the region. Uh, Then I also worked on other uh, projects, community development projects in eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk and Lugansk. Yeah, and have a lot of former colleagues or current colleagues who were working in Donetsk, Lugansk, Crimea. So kind of well connected. My morning now starts at 2 o'clock, 2 a.m. DC time. So I start calling in all my friends and relatives to see where they are and how things are on their side.
0: Before we go deeper into the environmental issues, lots of people are trying to find ways to help in humanitarian aid. And I think if you have any favourite gatherings and charities and organisations, then we can share the link with our listeners in the show notes. So you work a lot on the energy and I don't know whether Ukraine was a big energy exporter, but also agriculture was was very big, isn't it? So obviously life is disturbed in the immediate Period, But also future plans are disturbed as well. And you were telling me earlier about the agricultural season spring approaching, although still there's some very harsh weather to come in March. Tell us a little bit about perhaps the environmental damage that you expect from the war going on.
1: Of course, it's it's hard to estimate at this time because situation changes uh, every minute. Overnight, the largest nuclear power plant of Ukraine was attacked and caught fire, and the, the fire brigade was not uh, let in. Only when you know u- Ukrainian officials started to call in to international uh, atomic energy agency and European governments they were able somehow at least open the corridor for a fire brigade so that they couldn't put down the fire.
0: We're talking to each other on, on 4th of March. We actually did wake up with the news that is it Zaboriska yeah. power station near Enerhoda in the southeast of Ukraine it was under attack from Russian soldiers, but we've been told that the fire is under control and there isn't damage to the nuclear and, plant. And
1: actually, it started like uh, the previous day for me. So it's 10 p.m. DC time when, when this news started to come in. Mm. Yeah, I I could watch online because there are some cameras installed at the uh, nuclear power plant. So you can watch, watch online uh, what's going on.
0: I don't know what the word to describe that to be able to watch from DC what's happening in a power plant in
1: southeast Ukraine like 100 kilometers away mm. from where my parents are parents and,
0: uh, and i guess that that like, is one reason why why people are sort of paying more attention to this i guess it's very near and nuclear impact is quite large area and i guess even if it's not directly targeted there's the more activity there is around these plants the more risk there is for an accident to happen. It's just something that we need to be aware of rather than panic. Talked about agriculture as well. There is some, obviously food is going to be difficult to get to in the short term, but also in the long term. Tell me a a little bit about how you think that what's happening is going to affect that sector.
1: I think especially the current operations are ongoing in Eastern and Southern part of Ukraine, which is, Very agriculturally developed land, so Mm -hmm. most of the grains are grown there, so like wheat, corn, sunflower, the main production of this is there. So first, because of ongoing military operations, war, basically, this rocket that are flying over our skies will not be able to go into the field at all. Then there is information that they also spread in mines, uh, landmines. And even if they stop right now, so it will take time to demine the area. So this will reduce the possible territory to plant these crops significantly. Like a billion hectares will not be cultivated this spring, and they won't be planted uh, for next a- year. Mm. Yeah, so even if they stop right now, it's already, like, it's not assessed properly, but there are a lot of information suggested. Some mining rockets were fired, so before the mining operation, probably nobody will go and risk their life to plant anything there.
0: So there's the immediate effect that farmers can't work. There is the short-term effect that even if the war stopped today, they're still yeah. going to take time to clean all everything and there might be longer term effects actually that there's lots of planting seasons will be missed.
1: And many people just f- uh, flee, like leaving leaving their area. So I think there will be an issue even if some, some areas were not affected. There will mm-hmm. be no one to cultivate or plant. The,
0: the people are not there even if the yeah, mines yeah. were cleaned so how how were things environmentally in Ukraine before before all this started? You talked about working on the largest wind farm, and I think about fifty percent of Ukraine's energy comes from nuclear power, but they were still clearly investing in renewable energy. And were there increasing awareness of environmental issues amongst the people and amongst the policymakers? how How were things looking before all this?
1: um so y- ukraine has uh, kind of very heavy heritage from mm-hmm. soviet period of course so a lot of factories they were built like in 90s 30s 40s 50s and not much have been done to refurbish them rehabilitate mm-hmm. them yeah Yeah, so many of them were shut down because uh, there were no demand, but still several of them were even officially bankrupt. They were still producing steel and coke and so different production. But uh, Ukraine, so there is definite demand on the population side to clean uh, that up. Civil society is very active and uh, since 90s, a lot of organizations are working to bring new technologies, new approaches, and Ukraine have several times confirmed their strong inspiration and inclination towards European Union and the process to transpose the, the EU directives are in place since, like, 2000 four or five, so the government and the civil society and businesses as well, they're constantly working on bringing uh, new technologies. In 2009, the Ukrainian government adopted feed-in tariff and Mm -hmm. that opened era for renewable energy. So a lot of companies started to invest and there are like an, an an open possibilities for small farmers just to install um, solar panels on their rooftop and get uh, good financial benefits
0: so feed in tariffs are things for our listeners so you, if you produce energy for your own use but you got excess amounts of it you can sell it back to the grid and you get paid for that we had that system in the UK for a while uh, and loads of people put on uh, panels on their
1: roofs and stuff and then the policy was stopped that's what happened in Ukraine yeah Mm -hmm. I think it's good at the beginning to boost renewable energy but then we were a bit late with stopping uh, the system but yeah so the, the renewable energy share and total energy mix increased uh, by um, uh, up to se- 6, I think or 7%. It just like in less, less than 10 years. Yes. yes. Uh, it, and before it was basically 1-2% mm. and the 2% were hydro, like old hydros mm. and they were like enormous large hydros. So it's not like not very basically good not, not very, yeah, basically they, they flooded the half of... <laughs> territory of Ukraine I mean not a half a <laughs> significant amount back in 60s 70s um, so th- this is significant increase also uh, yeah as I said many directives like pollution prevention control and water directives they, they started to be transposed and under implementation in Ukraine then also um, emerald network uh, so first like two years ago it was mapped. What is it? I think it's part of Nature two thousand. Natura ah, okay. two thousand. So protected areas. Yeah, protected areas, yes. So all
0: across European Union and its sort of candidate countries that they they try and create areas, not only protect the local area but also connect so that the animals could move around and there's connection the, the more connected the protected areas the better they are the more resilient they are etc so ukraine was being part of that it's been extended yeah yeah, yeah. and mm. and
1: for the first time 2 years ago uh, this network so they got like a layer uh, for their land map uh, of ukraine before it was kind of different region has some information you need to write like official letters where is it what is it? You know, kind of. But they finally, like two years ago, they put boundaries. Mm-hmm. So if you plan in any activity, you can go to their land registry. Then you can just choose the layer you want to, to have on this map. And then you can see like if your new development violating the boundaries of that uh, nature protective uh, area so really a lot have been done in practical terms to support new project new developers people on the ground so it's not just you know some law that is somewhere in the skies but a lot of practical things that really helped Uh, new law in 2017 was adopted on around impact assessment which is very close to environmental, like international standard, environmental Mm -hmm. social impact assessment. So a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot have been done. Yeah, and for me, it's uh, that what I was working in, you know, the the field I I have practical experience from. So it's not something in theory, it worked and made local population aware, access to information, access to environmental information became open to everyone. Oh yeah, it's uh, not something secret or you need to write uh, official letters and wait for many days. Now you can just go and have this information at your fingertips. So it's huge, huge, huge improvement. And of course, yeah, Ukraine made commitments, carbon emissions, and it's closely followed. So there is a tax on carbon emissions and other pollutants. Yeah, so Ukraine did huge progress and really, like, people started to care about where they live, their environment, and they really, like, the consultations I carried, public hearings for projects I was working on, I, I was so pleasantly impressed, to be honest. Like even they they ask difficult questions. Even they they to you uh, you had the, to defend oh, yeah, yourself. Of course, yeah, of yeah, course. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's defend, good. Yeah, like, yeah. Like we we don't want this wind farms on our land, and uh, we we afraid of like I don't know. Some of them probably listen to some TV channels from our neighbor neighboring mm. countries. <laughs> president of uh, that country said uh, in some interview that windmills they cause worms to crawl out of the land of the earth so,
0: Windmills cause worms uh, to crawl. out Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Like vibration oh that they create, and yeah, I got this question. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I know where where do you come from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is no there is no study no uh, that that proved that. Yeah, like no evidence. Yeah, so yeah. Of course, I I got a lot of difficult questions, uh, but I was so pleased to see that people care. You know, that that's for me like the most important. That people care. To, this is their land, and they want the for themselves, for their kids, uh, for the generation to come. This more strong community started to form and they didn't want just, we don't care that you bring us a lot of money. The the practical side changed significantly and the attitude of people changed significantly before they would just ignore. Now they feel empowered, they feel empowered, They they feel they... They can change things and they can do them better for themselves, not just waiting for someone to come and tell them, like, okay, yeah, now this is like, this is a power plant, it will be staying here like you're liking it or not. Yes.
0: Right. I think we see that a lot, actually. I mean, obviously, I've never worked in Ukraine, but we even see it in the UK and other countries I worked. There is sometimes decision makers or even experts say, oh, people don't understand. This is too complex for people,
1: yeah. for ordinary
0: people that, on the street.
1: That's how you want to present it. That's right?
0: how you want to. And I think yeah. I sometimes say to people around this table, in this room, we are experts. But when we leave this room, we are the people on the street. Like we might know a lot about this topic, but there's someone else, some other experts having a meeting somewhere else and calling me an idiot who can't deal with complexity. And I think you're right. At some stage, knowingly or or unknowingly, we are saying that because it suits us. It suits us
1: that. Majority yeah, yeah, of people are not interested. We, yeah. we are just arrogant and you or we know. can
0: tell people whatever we want to tell people, and they will believe us. Whereas the story that the the picture that you're you're painting actually shows the 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 virtuous cycle that if you respect people, if you engage people, if you give them information, if you if you create trust in people, that they will engage and they they will contribute. And they can make these trade-offs between having lots of money and some environmental damage or lots of environmental damage and having less money and better environment. And better still, actually ask for options that deliver both. We can have both. In most cases, we're not just thinking exactly, about, exactly. about the Especially possibility. Exactly, you
1: engage in conversation and you're not afraid uh, to have difficult questions posed by the communities and you try to find and, and be honest. Some questions I, I can't answer right now, but if we work together, maybe we can do, do it together and, and find a solution together. Things were changing. We're changing. <laughs> we're, things were changing yeah, dramatically. You, you ask like how the situation was developing in Ukraine and And that's how I see it. It's prospering, it's changing, and people are caring.
0: There there are lots of mass media or specialist media outlets who are talking daily and minute by minute what's happening now. It's really good to get your view on the long perspective. And I I really believe there will be a, a muscle, a social muscle memory about this that the end of all this you won't lose this progress and perhaps the progress that you are defining is is what we're seeing now as well that people are organising people are not saying this is happening to me I will accept it, I will do what I can. It's a very difficult situation but perhaps there's a lot a lot in what you just said that explains what we've been seeing in the last week or so and this will come back this will not be forgotten that progress you described will not will not be forgotten i, I'm I just very also hopeful. yes exactly we will come back to this and and i'm really glad that you also want to speak again. And and I'm sure our listeners will want to hear from you about your previous experiences and and what transpires in the coming days. But I'd like to sort of finish this sitting with a few things that we can do as individuals. I have two co-hosts, as as you know, Dr. Sabina Apitz, who also works in uh, risk assessment, environmental impact assessment for projects mainly on sediments. And Jill Duggan, who is director of Environmental Defence Fund Europe, and she wrote an article on this issue yesterday, and we'll put that in the show notes. And she was very interested in finding out what we can do as individuals beyond humanitarian aid. And she describes insulating your home as an act against war because it reduces our dependency on energy and we know it's a good thing and she's got really lovely lines to, i mean i think it's very good description she says if you're a property owner with access to your roof space buy some rolls of mineral wool insulation and insulate your roof to a minimum of 30 centimeter if you're a builder train yourself in pest proof underfloor insulation there are millions in need of it and a huge knowledge and skills gap to doing it well If you're a government or policymaker, develop and mandate proper training for tradespeople. Even if you're none of the above, you can still turn your thermostat down by one degree. You would be amazed by the collective impact of this simple action. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think, yes, this is definitely one of those times we're reminded on the power of collective action and collaboration. Hope to speak to you on, on better days again.
1: Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, and yeah, thank you for your support.
0: Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.